Book Seven, Chapter Eleven, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Seven, Chapter Eleven. Pelageya Danilovna Melyukova, a broadly built, energetic woman wearing spectacles, sat in the drawing room in a loose dress, surrounded by her daughters, whom she was trying to keep from feeling dull. They were quietly dropping melted wax into snow and looking at the shadows the wax figures would throw on the wall, when they heard the steps and voices of new arrivals in the vestibule. Hussars, ladies, witches, clowns, and bears, after clearing their throats and wiping the hoarfrost from their faces in the vestibule, came into the ballroom where candles were hurriedly lighted. The clown, Dimmler, and the lady, Nicholas, started a dance. Surrounded by the screaming children, the mummers, covering their faces and disguising their voices, bowed to their hostess and arranged themselves about the room. "'Dear me! There's no recognizing them! And Natasha! See whom she looks like! She really reminds me of somebody! But Herr Dimmler, isn't he good! I didn't know him! And how he dances! Dear me! There's a Circassian! Really, how becoming it is to dear Sonia! And who is that?' Well, you have cheered us up. Nikita and Vanya, clear away the tables. And we were sitting so quietly. Ha, ha, ha! The hussar, the hussar, just like a boy. And the legs. I can't look at him," different voices were saying. Natasha, the young Melyukov's favorite, disappeared with them into the back rooms, where a cork and various dressing-gowns and male garments were called for and received from the footman by bare girlish arms from behind the door. Ten minutes later, all the young Melyukovs joined the mummers. Pelageya Danilovna, having given orders to clear the rooms for the visitors and arranged about refreshments for the gentry and the serfs, went about among the mummers without removing her spectacles, peering into their faces with a suppressed smile and failing to recognize any of them. It was not merely Dimmler and the Rostovs she failed to recognize, she did not even recognize her own daughters or her late husband's dressing-gowns and uniforms which they had put on. "'And who is this?' she asked her governess, peering into the face of her own daughter dressed up as a Kazan Tartar. "'I suppose it is one of the Rostovs. Well, Mr. Hussar, and what regiment do you serve in?' she asked Natasha. "'Here, hand some fruit-jelly to the Turk,' she ordered the butler who was handing things round. "'That's not forbidden by his law.' Sometimes, as she looked at the strange but amusing capers cut by the dancers, who, having decided once for all that being disguised, no one would recognize them, were not at all shy, Pelageya Danilovna hid her face in her handkerchief, and her whole stout body shook with irrepressible, kindly, elderly laughter. "'My little Sasha! Look at Sasha!' she said. After Russian country dances and chorus dances, Pelageya Danilovna made the serfs and gentry join in one large circle. A ring, a string, and a silver rouble were fetched, and they all played games together. In an hour all the costumes were crumpled and disordered. The corked eyebrows and moustaches were smeared over the perspiring, flushed, and merry faces. Pelageya Danilovna began to recognize the mummers, admired their cleverly contrived costumes, and particularly how they suited the young ladies and she thanked them all for having entertained her so well. 
The visitors were invited to supper in the drawing-room, and the serfs had something served to them in the ballroom. "'Now, to tell one's fortune in the empty bathhouse is frightening,' said an old maid who lived with the Melyukovs during supper. "'Why?' said the eldest Melyukov girl. "'You wouldn't go. It takes courage.' "'I'll go,' said Sonia. "'Tell what happens to the young lady,' said the second Melyukov girl. "'Well,' began the old maid, "'a young lady once went out, took a cock, laid the table for two, all properly, and sat down. After sitting a while she suddenly hears someone coming. A slave drives up with harness-bells. She hears him coming. He comes in, just in the shape of a man, like an officer, comes in and sits down to table with her. "'Ah! ah!' screamed Natasha, rolling her eyes with horror. "'Yes, and how—did he speak?' "'Yes, like a man. Everything quite all right, and he began persuading her. And she should have kept him talking till cock-crow, but she got frightened, just got frightened, and hid her face in her hands. Then he caught her up. It was lucky the maids ran in just then. "'Now why frighten them?' said Pelagea Danilovna. "'Mama, you used to try your fate yourself,' said her daughter. "'And how does one do it in a barn?' inquired Sonia. "'Well, say you went to the barn now and listened. It depends on what you hear. Hammering and knocking, that's bad. But a sound of shifting grain is good, and one sometimes hears that too.' Mama, tell us what happened to you in the barn." Pelagea Danilovna smiled. "'Oh, I've forgotten,' she replied. "'But none of you would go?' "'Yes, I will. Pelagea Danilovna, let me. I'll go,' said Sonia. "'Well, why not, if you're not afraid?' "'Luisa Ivanovna, may I?' asked Sonia. Whether they were playing the ring-and-string game or the rouble game or talking as now, Nicholas did not leave Sonia's side, and gazed at her with quite new eyes. It seemed to him that it was only today, thanks to that burnt cork moustache, that he had fully learned to know her. And really that evening Sonia was brighter, more animated, and prettier than Nicholas had ever seen her before. "'So that's what she is like! What a fool I have been!' he thought, gazing at her sparkling eyes, and under the moustache a happy, rapturous smile dimpled her cheeks, a smile he had never seen before. "'I am not afraid of anything,' said Sonia. "'May I go at once?' She got up. They told her where the barn was and how she should stand and listen, and they handed her a fur cloak. She threw this over her head and shoulders and glanced at Nicholas. "'What a darling that girl is,' thought he and what have I been thinking of till now?" Sonia went out into the passage to go to the barn. Nicholas went hastily to the front porch, saying he felt too hot. The crowd of people really had made the house stuffy. Outside there was the same cold stillness and the same moon, but even brighter than before. The light was so strong and the snow sparkled with so many stars that one did not wish to look up at the sky and the real stars were unnoticed. The sky was black and dreary while the earth was gay. "'I am a fool, a fool! What have I been waiting for?' thought Nicholas, and running out from the porch he went round the corner of the house and along the path that led to the back porch. He knew Sonia would pass that way. 
Halfway lay some snow-covered piles of firewood, and across and along them a network of shadows from the bare old lime-trees fell on the snow and on the path. This path led to the barn. The log walls of the barn and its snow-covered roof, that looked as if hewn out of some precious stone, sparkled in the moonlight. A tree in the garden snapped with the frost, and then all was again perfectly silent. His bosom seemed to inhale not air but the strength of eternal youth and gladness. From the back porch came the sound of feet descending the steps. The bottom step, upon which snow had fallen, gave a ringing creak, and he heard the voice of an old maidservant saying, "'Straight, straight along the path, miss. Only don't look back.' "'I am not afraid,' answered Sonia's voice and along the path toward Nicholas came the crunching, whistling sound of Sonia's feet in her thin shoes. Sonia came along, wrapped in her cloak. She was only a couple of paces away when she saw him, and to her, too, he was not the Nicholas she had known and always slightly feared. He was in a woman's dress, with tousled hair and a happy smile new to Sonia. She ran rapidly toward him. "'Quite different, and yet the same,' thought Nicholas looking at her face, all lit up by the moonlight. He slipped his arms under the cloak that covered her head, embraced her, pressed her to him, and kissed her on the lips that wore a mustache and had a smell of burnt cork. Sonia kissed him full on the lips, and disengaging her little hands, pressed them to his cheeks. Sonia, Nicholas, was all they said. They ran to the barn and then back again, re-entering, he by the front, and she by the back porch. End of Book Seven, Chapter Eleven. Book Seven, Chapter Twelve, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Seven, Chapter Twelve. When they all drove back from Pelagea Danilovna's, Natasha, who always saw and noticed everything, arranged that she and Madame Schoss should go back in the sleigh with Dimmler, and Sonia with Nicholas and the maids. On the way back, Nicholas drove at a steady pace instead of racing, and kept peering by that fantastic, all-transforming light into Sonia's face, and searching beneath the eyebrows and moustache for his former and his present Sonia from whom he had resolved never to be parted again. He looked, and recognizing in her both the old and the new Sonia, and being reminded by the smell of burnt cork of the sensation of her kiss, inhaled the frosty air with a full breast, and looking at the ground flying beneath him and at the sparkling sky, felt himself again in fairyland. "'Sonia, is it well with thee?' he asked from time to time. "'Yes,' she replied, and with thee. When halfway home, Nicholas handed the reins to the coachman and ran for a moment to Natasha's sleigh and stood on its wing. Natasha, he whispered in French, do you know I have made up my mind about Sonia? Have you told her? asked Natasha, suddenly beaming all over with joy. Oh, how strange you are with that mustache and those eyebrows. Natasha, are you glad? I am so glad, so glad. I was beginning to be vexed with you. I did not tell you, but you have been treating her badly. What a heart she has, Nicholas! I am horrid sometimes, 
but I was ashamed to be happy while Sonia was not,' continued Natasha. "'Now I am so glad. Well, run back to her. No, wait a bit. Oh, how funny you look!' cried Nicholas, peering into her face and finding in his sister, too, something new, unusual, and bewitchingly tender, that he had not seen in her before. "'Natasha, it's magical, isn't it?' "'Yes,' she replied. "'You have done splendidly.' "'Had I seen her before as she is now,' thought Nicholas, "'I should long ago have asked her what to do, and have done whatever she told me, and all would have been well.' So. You are glad, and I have done right?" Oh, quite right. I had a quarrel with Mama some time ago about it. Mama said she was angling for you. How could she say such a thing? I nearly stormed at Mama. I will never let anyone say anything bad of Sonia, for there is nothing but good in her. Then it's all right," said Nicholas, again scrutinizing the expression of his sister's face to see if she was in earnest. Then he jumped down, and his boots crunching the snow, ran back to his sleigh. The same happy, smiling Circassian, with moustache and beaming eyes looking up from under a sable hood, was still sitting there, and that Circassian was Sonia, and that Sonia was certainly his future happy and loving wife. When they reached home and had told their mother how they had spent the evening at the Melyukovs, the girls went to their bedroom. When they had undressed, but without washing off the cork moustaches, they sat a long time talking of their happiness. They talked of how they would live when they were married, how their husbands would be friends, and how happy they would be. On Natasha's table stood two looking-glasses which Dunyasha had prepared beforehand. "'Only when will it all be? I'm afraid never. It would be too good,' said Natasha, rising and going to the looking-glasses. "'Sit down, Natasha. Perhaps you'll see him,' said Sonia. Natasha lit the candles, one on each side of one of the looking-glasses, and sat down. "'I see someone with a moustache,' said Natasha, seeing her own face. "'You mustn't laugh, miss,' said Dunyasha. With Sonia's help and the maid's, Natasha got the glass she held into the right position opposite the other. Her face assumed a serious expression, and she sat silent. She sat a long time looking at the receding line of candles reflected in the glasses, and expecting, from the tale she had heard, to see a coffin, or him, Prince Andrew, in that last dim, indistinctly outlined square. But ready as she was to take the smallest speck for the image of a man or of a coffin, she saw nothing. She began blinking rapidly and moved away from the looking-glasses. "'Why is it others see things and I don't?' she said. You sit down now, Sonia. You absolutely must tonight. Do it for me. Today I feel so frightened." Sonia sat down before the glasses, got the right position, and began looking. "'Now Miss Sonia is sure to see something,' whispered Dunyasha. "'Well, you do nothing but laugh.' Sonia heard this, and Natasha's whisper, "'I know she will. She saw something last year.' For about three minutes all were silent. "'Of course she will,' whispered Natasha, but did not finish. Suddenly Sonia pushed away the glass she was holding and covered her eyes with her hand. "'Oh, Natasha!' she cried. "'Did you see? Did you? What was it?' exclaimed Natasha, holding up the looking-glass. Sonia had not seen anything, 
she was just wanting to blink and to get up, when she heard Natasha say, of course she will. She did not wish to disappoint either Dunyasha or Natasha, but it was hard to sit still. She did not herself know how or why the exclamation escaped her when she covered her eyes. "'You saw him?' urged Natasha, seizing her hand. "'Yes. Wait a bit. I... saw him,' Sonia could not help saying, not yet knowing whom Natasha meant by him, Nicholas or Prince Andrew. "'But why shouldn't I say I saw something? Others do see. Besides, who can tell whether I saw anything or not?' flashed through Sonia's mind. "'Yes, I saw him,' she said. "'How? Standing or lying?' "'No, I saw. At first there was nothing. Then I saw him lying down.' "'Andrew's lying? Is he ill?' asked Natasha, her frightened eyes fixed on her friend. "'No, on the contrary, on the contrary. His face was cheerful, and he turned to me.' And when saying this she herself fancied she had really seen what she described. "'Well, and then, Sonia?' After that I could not make out what there was, something blue and red. "'Sonia, when will he come back? When shall I see him? Oh, God, how afraid I am for him and for myself and about everything!' Natasha began, and without replying to Sonia's words of comfort she got into bed, and long after her candle was out lay open-eyed and motionless, gazing at the moonlight through the frosty window-panes. End of Book 7, Chapter 12《7, Chapter 13, of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 7, Chapter 13 Soon after the Christmas holidays, Nicholas told his mother of his love for Sonia and of his firm resolve to marry her. The Countess, who had long noticed what was going on between them and was expecting this declaration, listened to him in silence and then told her son that he might marry whom he pleased, but that neither she nor his father would give their blessing to such a marriage. Nicholas, for the first time, felt that his mother was displeased with him, and that despite her love for him she would not give way. Coldly, without looking at her son, she sent for her husband, and when he came, tried briefly and coldly to inform him of the facts in her son's presence, but unable to restrain herself she burst into tears of vexation and left the room. The old Count began irresolutely to admonish Nicholas, and beg him to abandon his purpose. Nicholas replied that he could not go back on his word, and his father, sighing and evidently disconcerted, very soon became silent and went in to the Countess. In all his encounters with his son, the Count was always conscious of his own guilt toward him for having wasted the family fortune, and so he could not be angry with him for refusing to marry an heiress and choosing the dowerless Sonia. On this occasion he was only more vividly conscious of the fact that, if his affairs had not been in disorder, no better wife for Nicholas than Sonia could have been wished for, and that no one but himself, with his Matenka and his uncomfortable habits, was to blame for the condition of the family finances. The father and mother did not speak of the matter to their son again, but a few days later the countess sent for Sonia, 
and, with a cruelty neither of them expected, reproached her niece for trying to catch Nicholas and for ingratitude. Sonia listened silently with downcast eyes to the Countess' cruel words, without understanding what was required of her. She was ready to sacrifice everything for her benefactors. Self-sacrifice was her most cherished idea, but in this case she could not see what she ought to sacrifice or for whom. She could not help loving the Countess and the whole Rostov family, but neither could she help loving Nicholas and knowing that his happiness depended on that love. She was silent and sad and did not reply. Nicholas felt the situation to be intolerable and went to have an explanation with his mother. He first implored her to forgive him and Sonia and consent to their marriage. Then he threatened that if she molested Sonia he would at once marry her secretly. The Countess, with a coldness her son had never seen in her before, replied that he was of age, that Prince Andrew was marrying without his father's consent and he could do the same, but that she would never receive that intriguer as her daughter. Exploding at the word intriguer, Nicholas raising his voice told his mother he had never expected her to try to force him to sell his feelings, but if that were so he would say for the last time. But he had no time to utter the decisive word which the expression of his face caused his mother to await with terror, and which would perhaps have forever remained a cruel memory to them both. He had not time to say it, for Natasha, with a pale and set face, entered the room from the door at which she had been listening. "'Nicholas, you are talking nonsense! Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, I tell you!' she almost screamed so as to drown his voice. "'Mama, darling, it's not at all so. My poor, sweet darling,' she said to her mother, who, conscious that they had been on the brink of a rupture, gazed at her son with terror, but in the obstinacy and excitement of the conflict could not and would not give way. "'Nicholas, I'll explain to you. Go away.' "'Listen, Mama, darling,' said Natasha. Her words were incoherent, but they attained the purpose at which she was aiming. The Countess, sobbing heavily, hid her face on her daughter's breast, while Nicholas rose, clutching his head, and left the room. Natasha set to work to effect a reconciliation, and so far succeeded that Nicholas received a promise from his mother that Sonia should not be troubled, while he on his side promised not to undertake anything without his parents' knowledge. Firmly resolved, after putting his affairs in order in the regiment, to retire from the army and return and marry Sonia, Nicholas, serious, sorrowful, and at variance with his parents, but, as it seemed to him, passionately in love, left at the beginning of January to rejoin his regiment. After Nicholas had gone, things in the Rostov household were more depressing than ever, and the Countess fell ill from mental agitation. Sonia was unhappy at the separation from Nicholas, and still more so on account of the hostile tone the Countess could not help adopting toward her. The Count was more perturbed than ever by the condition of his affairs, which called for some decisive action. Their townhouse and estate near Moscow had inevitably to be sold, and for this they had to go to Moscow. But the Countess' health obliged them to delay their departure from day to day. Natasha, who had borne the first period of separation from her betrothed lightly and even cheerfully, now grew more agitated and impatient every day. 
the thought that her best days, which she would have employed in loving him, were being vainly wasted, with no advantage to anyone, tormented her incessantly. His letters for the most part irritated her. It hurt her to think that, while she lived only in the thought of him, he was living a real life, seeing new places and new people that interested him. The more interesting his letters were, the more vexed she felt. Her letters to him, far from giving her any comfort, seemed to her a wearisome and artificial obligation. She could not write, because she could not conceive the possibility of expressing sincerely in a letter even a thousandth part of what she expressed by voice, smile, and glance. She wrote to him formal, monotonous, and dry letters, to which she attached no importance herself, and in the rough copies of which the Countess corrected her mistakes in spelling. There was still no improvement in the Countess' health, but it was impossible to defer the journey to Moscow any longer. Natasha's trousseau had to be ordered and the house sold. Moreover, Prince Andrew was expected in Moscow, where old Prince Bolkonsky was spending the winter, and Natasha felt sure he had already arrived. So the Countess remained in the country, and the Count, taking Sonia and Natasha with him, went to Moscow at the end of January. End of Book 7 Chapter 13《Book Eight, Chapter One, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eight, eighteen eleven to eighteen twelve, Chapter One. After Prince Andrew's engagement to Natasha, Pierre, without any apparent cause, suddenly felt it impossible to go on living as before. Firmly convinced as he was of the truths revealed to him by his benefactor, and happy as he had been in perfecting his inner man, to which he had devoted himself with such ardor, all the zest of such a life vanished after the engagement of Andrew and Natasha and the death of Joseph Alexeyevich, the news of which reached him almost at the same time. Only the skeleton of life remained. His house, a brilliant wife, who now enjoyed the favors of a very important personage, acquaintance with all Petersburg, and his court service with its dull formalities. And this life suddenly seemed to Pierre unexpectedly loathsome. He ceased keeping a diary, avoided the company of the brothers, began going to the club again, drank a great deal, and came once more in touch with the bachelor sets, leading such a life that the Countess Elaine thought it necessary to speak severely to him about it. Pierre felt that she was right and to avoid compromising her went away to Moscow. In Moscow, as soon as he entered his huge house in which the faded and fading princesses still lived with its enormous retinue, as soon as driving through the town he saw the Iberian shrine, with innumerable tapers burning before the golden covers of the icons, the Kremlin Square, with its snow undisturbed by vehicles, the sleigh-drivers and hovels of the Siftsev Rajak, those old Muscovites who desired nothing, hurried nowhere, and were ending their days leisurely. When he saw those old Moscow ladies, the Moscow balls and the English club, he felt himself at home in a quiet haven. In Moscow he felt at peace, at home, warm and dirty as in an old dressing-gown. Moscow society, 
from the old women down to the children, received Pierre like a long-expected guest, whose place was always ready waiting for him. For Moscow society Pierre was the nicest, kindest, most intellectual, merriest and most magnanimous of cranks, a heedless genial nobleman of the old Russian type. His purse was always empty because it was open to everyone. Benefit performances, poor pictures, statues, benevolent societies, gypsy choirs, schools, subscription dinners, sprees, Freemasons, churches and books, no one and nothing met with a refusal from him, and had it not been for two friends who had borrowed large sums from him and taken him under their protection, he would have given everything away. There was never a dinner or soiree at the club without him. As soon as he sank into his place on the sofa, after two bottles of Margot, he was surrounded, and talking, disputing, and joking began. When there were quarrels, his kindly smile and well-timed jests reconciled the antagonists. The Masonic dinners were dull and dreary when he was not there. When, after a bachelor supper, he rose with his amiable and kindly smile, yielding to the entreaties of the festive company to drive off somewhere with them, Shouts of delight and triumph arose among the young men. At balls he danced if a partner was needed. Young ladies, married and unmarried, liked him, because without making love to any of them he was equally amiable to all, especially after supper. "'Il est charmant. Il n'a pas de sexe.' "'He is charming. He has no sex,' they said of him. Pierre was one of those retired gentlemen-in-waiting of whom there were hundreds good-humouredly ending their days in Moscow. How horrified he would have been seven years before when he first arrived from abroad, had he been told that there was no need for him to seek or plan anything, that his rut had long been shaped, eternally predetermined, and that, wriggle as he might, he would be what all in his position were. He could not have believed it. Had he not at one time longed with all his heart to establish a republic in Russia, then himself to be a Napoleon, then to be a philosopher, and then a strategist and the conqueror of Napoleon? Had he not seen the possibility of, and passionately desired, the regeneration of the sinful human race, and his own progress to the highest degree of perfection? Had he not established schools and hospitals, and liberated his serfs? But instead of all that, here he was, the wealthy husband of an unfaithful wife, a retired gentleman-in-waiting, fond of eating and drinking, and, as he unbuttoned his waistcoat, of abusing the government a bit, a member of the Moscow English Club, and a universal favorite in Moscow society. For a long time he could not reconcile himself to the idea that he was one of those same retired Moscow gentlemen-in-waiting he had so despised seven years before. Sometimes he consoled himself with the thought that he was only living this life temporarily, but then he was shocked by the thought of how many, like himself, had entered that life and that club temporarily, with all their teeth and hair, and had only left it when not a single tooth or hair remained. In moments of pride, when he thought of his position, it seemed to him that he was quite different and distinct from those other retired gentlemen-in-waiting he had formerly despised. They were empty, stupid, contented fellows, satisfied with their positions. While I am still discontented, and want to do something for mankind. But, perhaps, all these comrades of mine struggled just like me, and sought something new, a path in life of their own, 
and like me were brought by force of circumstances, society, and race, by that elemental force against which man is powerless, to the condition I am in," said he to himself in moments of humility. And after living some time in Moscow, he no longer despised, but began to grow fond of, to respect, and to pity his comrades in destiny, as he pitied himself. Pierre no longer suffered moments of despair, hypochondria, and disgust with life, but the malady that had formerly found expression in such acute attacks was driven inwards and never left him for a moment. What for? Why? What is going on in the world? he would ask himself in perplexity several times a day, involuntarily beginning to reflect anew on the meaning of the phenomena of life. But knowing by experience that there were no answers to these questions, he made haste to turn away from them, and took up a book, or hurried off to the club, or to Apollon Nikolaevich's to exchange the gossip of the town. Elaine, who has never cared for anything but her own body, and is one of the stupidest women in the world, thought Pierre, is regarded by people as the acme of intelligence and refinement, and they pay homage to her. Napoleon Bonaparte was despised by all as long as he was great, but now that he has become a wretched comedian, the Emperor Francis wants to offer him his daughter in an illegal marriage. The Spaniards, through the Catholic clergy, offer praise to God for their victory over the French on the 14th of June, and the French, who also through the Catholic clergy, offer praise because on that same 14th of June they defeated the Spaniards. My brother Masons swear by the blood that they are ready to sacrifice everything for their neighbor, but they do not give a rouble each to the collections for the poor, and they intrigue, they stray a lodge against the manna-seekers, and fuss about an authentic Scotch carpet, and a charter that nobody needs, and the meaning of which the very man who wrote it does not understand. We all profess the Christian law of forgiveness of injuries and love of our neighbors, the law in honor of which we have built in Moscow forty times forty churches, but yesterday a deserter was knouted to death, and a minister of that same law of love and forgiveness, a priest, gave the soldier a cross to kiss before his execution." So thought Pierre, and the whole of this general deception which everyone accepts, accustomed as he was to it, astonished him each time as if it were something new. "'I understand the deception and confusion,' he thought, but how am I to tell them all that I see? I have tried and have always found that they too in the depths of their souls understand it as I do, and only try not to see it. So it appears that it must be so. But I, what is to become of me?" thought he. He had the unfortunate capacity many men, especially Russians, have, of seeing and believing in the possibility of goodness and truth, but of seeing the evil and falsehood of life too clearly to be able to take a serious part in it. Every sphere of work was connected, in his eyes, with evil and deception. Whatever he tried to be, whatever he engaged in, the evil and falsehood of it repulsed him and blocked every path of activity. Yet he had to live and to find occupation. It was too dreadful to be under the burden of these insoluble problems, so he abandoned himself to any distraction in order to forget them. He frequented every kind of society drank much, bought pictures, engaged in building, and above all, read. He read, and read everything that came to hand. 
on coming home, while his valets were still taking off his things, he picked up a book and began to read. From reading he passed to sleeping, from sleeping to gossip in drawing-rooms of the club, from gossip to carousals and women, from carousals back to gossip, reading and wine. Drinking became more and more a physical and also a moral necessity. Though the doctors warned him that with his corpulence wine was dangerous for him, he drank a great deal. He was only quite at ease when, having poured several glasses of wine mechanically into his large mouth, he felt a pleasant warmth in his body, an amiability toward all his fellows, and a readiness to respond superficially to every idea without probing it deeply. Only after emptying a bottle or two did he feel dimly that the terribly tangled skein of life which previously had terrified him was not as dreadful as he had thought. He was always conscious of some aspect of that skein, as with a buzzing in his head after dinner or supper he chatted or listened to conversation or read. But under the influence of wine he said to himself, "'It doesn't matter. I'll get it unraveled. I have a solution ready, but have no time now. I'll think it all out later on.' But the later on never came. In the morning, on an empty stomach, all the old questions appeared as insoluble and terrible as ever, and Pierre hastily picked up a book, and if anyone came to see him he was glad. Sometimes he remembered how he had heard that soldiers in war, when entrenched under the enemy's fire, if they have nothing to do, try hard to find some occupation the more easily to bear the danger. To Pierre all men seem like those soldiers seeking refuge from life some in ambition, some in cards, some in framing laws, some in women, some in toys, some in horses, some in politics, some in sport, some in wine, and some in governmental affairs. Nothing is trivial, and nothing is important. It's all the same. Only to save oneself from it as best one can," thought Pierre. Only not to see it, that dreadful it. End of Book 8, Chapter 1《8, Chapter 2 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 8, Chapter 2 At the beginning of winter, Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky and his daughter moved to Moscow. At that time enthusiasm for the Emperor Alexander's regime had weakened, and a patriotic and anti-French tendency prevailed there, and this, together with his past and his intellect and his originality, at once made Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky an object of particular respect to the Moscovites and the center of the Moscow opposition to the government. The prince had aged very much that year. He showed marked signs of senility by a tendency to fall asleep, forgetfulness of quite recent events, remembrance of remote ones, and the childish vanity with which he accepted the role of head of the Moscow opposition. In spite of this, the old man inspired in all his visitors alike a feeling of respectful veneration, especially of an evening when he came into tea in his old-fashioned coat and powdered wig, and, aroused by anyone, told his abrupt stories of the past, or uttered yet more abrupt and scathing criticisms of the present. For them all, that old-fashioned house, with its gigantic mirrors, pre-revolution furniture, powdered footmen, and the stern, shrewd old man, 
himself a relic of the past century, with his gentle daughter and the pretty Frenchwoman who were reverently devoted to him, presented a majestic and agreeable spectacle. But the visitors did not reflect that, besides the couple of hours during which they saw their host, there were also twenty-two hours in the day during which the private and intimate life of the house continued. Latterly that private life had become very trying for Princess Mary. There in Moscow she was deprived of her greatest pleasures, talks with the pilgrims and the solitude which refreshed her at Bald Hills, and she had none of the advantages and pleasures of city life. She did not go out into society. Everyone knew that her father would not let her go anywhere without him, and his failing health prevented his going out himself, so that she was not invited to dinners and evening parties. She had quite abandoned the hope of getting married. She saw the coldness and malevolence with which the old prince received and dismissed the young men, possibly suitors who sometimes appeared at their house. She had no friends. During this visit to Moscow she had been disappointed in the two who had been nearest to her. Mademoiselle Bourienne, with whom she had never been able to be quite frank, had now become unpleasant to her, and for various reasons Princess Mary avoided her. Julie, with whom she had corresponded for the last five years, was in Moscow, but proved to be quite alien to her when they met. Just then Julie, who by the death of her brothers had become one of the richest heiresses in Moscow, was in the full world of society pleasures. She was surrounded by young men who, she fancied, had suddenly learned to appreciate her worth. Julie was at that stage in the life of a society woman when she feels that her last chance of marrying has come, and that her fate must be decided now or never. On Thursdays Princess Mary remembered with a mournful smile that she now had no one to write to, since Julie, whose presence gave her no pleasure, was here, and they met every week. Like the old émigré who declined to marry the lady with whom he had spent his evenings for years, she regretted Julie's presence, and having no one to write to. In Moscow Princess Mary had no one to talk to, no one to whom to confide her sorrow, and much sorrow fell to her lot just then. The time for Prince Andrew's return in marriage was approaching, but his request to her to prepare his father for it had not been carried out. In fact, it seemed as if matters were quite hopeless, for at every mention of the young Countess Rostova, the old prince, who apart from that was usually in a bad temper, lost control of himself. Another lately added sorrow arose from the lesson she gave her six-year-old nephew. To her consternation she detected in herself, in relation to little Nicholas, some symptoms of her father's irritability. However often she told herself that she must not get irritable when teaching her nephew, almost every time that, pointer in hand, she sat down to show him the French alphabet, she so longed to pour her own knowledge quickly and easily into the child, who was already afraid that Auntie might at any moment get angry, that at his slightest inattention she trembled, became flustered and heated, raised her voice, and sometimes pulled him by the arm and put him in the corner. Having put him in the corner, she would herself begin to cry over her cruel, evil nature, and little Nicholas, following her example, would sob, and without permission would leave his corner, come to her, pull her wet hands from her face, and comfort her. But what distressed the princess most of all was her father's irritability, which was always directed against her, and had of late amounted to cruelty. 
Had he forced her to prostrate herself to the ground all night? Had he beaten her or made her fetch wood or water? It would never have entered her mind to think her position hard. But this loving despot, the more cruel because he loved her and for that reason tormented himself and her, knew how not merely to hurt and humiliate her deliberately, but to show her that she was always to blame for everything. Of late he had exhibited a new trait that tormented Princess Mary more than anything else. This was his ever-increasing intimacy with Mademoiselle Bourienne. The idea that at the first moment of receiving the news of his son's intentions had occurred to him in jest, that if Andrew got married he himself would marry Bourienne, had evidently pleased him and latterly he had persistently, and as it seemed to Princess Mary merely to offend her, shown special endearments to the companion, and expressed his dissatisfaction with his daughter by demonstrations of love of Bourienne. One day in Moscow, in Princess Mary's presence, she thought her father did it purposely when she was there, the old prince kissed Mademoiselle Bourienne's hand, and drawing her to him, embraced her affectionately. Princess Mary flushed and ran out of the room. A few minutes later, Mademoiselle Bourienne came into Princess Mary's room, smiling and making cheerful remarks in her agreeable voice. Princess Mary hastily wiped away her tears, went resolutely up to Mademoiselle Bourienne, and, evidently unconscious of what she was doing, began shouting in angry haste at the Frenchwoman, her voice breaking, "'It's horrible, vile, inhuman to take advantage of the weakness!' She did not finish. "'Leave my room!' she exclaimed and burst into sobs. Next day the prince did not say a word to his daughter, but she noticed that at dinner he gave orders that Mademoiselle Bourienne should be served first. After dinner, when the footman handed coffee and from habit began with the princess, the prince suddenly grew furious, threw his stick at Philip, and instantly gave instructions to have him conscripted for the army. "'He doesn't obey! I said it twice!' and he doesn't obey. She is the first person in this house. She's my best friend," cried the prince. And if you allow yourself, he screamed in a fury, addressing Princess Mary for the first time, to forget yourself again before her as you dared to do yesterday, I will show you who is master in this house. Go! Don't let me set eyes on you. Beg her pardon." Princess Mary asked Mademoiselle Bourienne's pardon, and also her father's pardon for herself and for Philip the footman, who had begged for her intervention. At such moments something like a pride of sacrifice gathered in her soul. And suddenly that father whom she had judged would look for his spectacles in her presence, fumbling near them and not seeing them, or would forget something that had just occurred or take a false step with his failing legs and turn to see if anyone had noticed his feebleness, or, worst of all, at dinner, when there were no visitors to excite him, would suddenly fall asleep, letting his napkin drop and his shaking head sink over his plate. "'He is old and feeble, and I dare to condemn him,' she thought at such moments, with a feeling of revulsion against herself. End of Book Eight, Chapter Two Book Eight, Chapter Three, of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.
Book Eight, Chapter Three. In 1811, there was living in Moscow a French doctor, Metivier, who had rapidly become the fashion. He was enormously tall, handsome, amiable as Frenchmen are, and was, as all Moscow said, an extraordinarily clever doctor. He was received in the best houses not merely as a doctor, but as an equal. Prince Nicholas had always ridiculed medicine, but latterly, on Mademoiselle Burienne's advice, had allowed this doctor to visit him, and had grown accustomed to him. Metivier came to see the prince about twice a week. On December 6, St. Nicholas Day and the prince's name-day, all Moscow came to the prince's front door, but he gave orders to admit no one and to invite to dinner only a small number, a list of whom he gave to Princess Mary. Metivier, who came in the morning with his felicitations, considered it proper in his quality of doctor de forcer la consigne to force the guard, as he told Princess Mary, and went in to see the prince. It happened that on that morning of his name-day the prince was in one of his worst moods. He had been going about the house all morning finding fault with everyone, and pretending not to understand what was said to him, and not to be understood himself. Princess Mary well knew this mood of quiet, absorbed querulousness, which generally culminated in a burst of rage, and she went about all that morning as though facing a cocked and loaded gun, and awaited the inevitable explosion. Until the doctor's arrival the morning had passed off safely. After admitting the doctor, Princess Mary sat down with a book in the drawing-room, near the door through which she could hear all that passed in the study. At first she heard only Metivier's voice, then her father's, then both voices began speaking at the same time, the door was flung open, and on the threshold appeared the handsome figure of the terrified Metivier with his shock of black hair, and the prince in his dressing-gown and fez, his face distorted with fury, and the pupils of his eyes rolled downwards. "'You don't understand?' shouted the prince. "'But I do! French spy! Slave of Bonaparte! Spy! Get out of my house! Be off, I tell you!' And he slammed the door. Metivier, shrugging his shoulders, went up to Mademoiselle Bourienne, who, at the sound of shouting, had run in from an adjoining room. "'The prince is not very well.' bile and rush of blood to the head. Keep calm, I will call again tomorrow," said Metivier, and putting his fingers to his lips he hastened away. Through the study door came the sound of slippered feet and the cry, "'Spies! Traitors! Traitors everywhere! Not a moment's peace in my own house!' After Metivier's departure the old prince called his daughter in, and the whole weight of his wrath fell on her. She was to blame that a spy had been admitted. Had he not told her, yes, told her to make a list, and not to admit anyone who was not on that list? Then why was that scoundrel admitted? She was the cause of it all. With her, he said, he could not have a moment's peace and could not die quietly. No, ma'am, we must part, we must part. Understand that, understand it. I cannot endure any more, he said, and left the room. Then, as if afraid she might find some means of consolation, he returned, and trying to appear calm, added, "'And don't imagine I have said this in a moment of anger. I am calm. I have thought it over, and it will be carried out. We must part. So find some place for yourself.' 
but he could not restrain himself, and with the virulence of which only one who loves is capable, evidently suffering himself, he shook his fists at her and screamed, "'If only some fool would marry her!' Then he slammed the door, sent for Mademoiselle Bourienne, and subsided into his study. At two o'clock the six chosen guests assembled for dinner. These guests, the famous Count Rostopchin, Prince Lepukhin with his nephew, General Chatrov, an old war comrade of the princes, and of the younger generation, Pierre and Boris Drubetskoy, awaited the prince in the drawing-room. Boris, who had come to Moscow on leave a few days before, had been anxious to be presented to Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky, and had contrived to ingratiate himself so well that the old prince in his case made an exception to the rule of not receiving bachelors in his house. The prince's house did not belong to what is known as fashionable society, but his little circle, though not much talked about in town, was one it was more flattering to be received in than any other. Boris had realized this the week before when the commander-in-chief in his presence invited Rostopchin to dinner on St. Nicholas Day, and Rostopchin had replied that he could not come. "'On that day I always go to pay my devotions to the relics of Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky.' "'Oh, yes, yes,' replied the commander-in-chief. "'How is he?' The small group that assembled before dinner in the lofty, old-fashioned drawing-room with its old furniture resembled the solemn gathering of a court of justice. All were silent or talked in low tones. Prince Nicholas came in serious and taciturn. Princess Mary seemed even quieter and more diffident than usual. The guests were reluctant to address her feeling that she was in no mood for their conversation. Count Rostopchin alone kept the conversation going, now relating the latest town news and now the latest political gossip. Lepukhin and the old general occasionally took part in the conversation. Prince Bolkonsky listened as a presiding judge receives a report, only now and then, silently or by a brief word, showing that he took heed of what was being reported to him. The tone of the conversation was such as indicated that no one approved of what was being done in the political world. Incidents were related evidently confirming the opinion that everything was going from bad to worse, but whether telling a story or giving an opinion, the speaker always stopped, or was stopped, at the point beyond which his criticism might touch the sovereign himself. At dinner the talk turned on the latest political news. Napoleon's seizure of the Duke of Oldenburg's territory and the Russian note, hostile to Napoleon, which had been sent to all the European courts. "'Bonaparte treats Europe as a pirate does a captured vessel,' said Count Rostopchin, repeating a phrase he had uttered several times before. "'One only wonders at the long-suffering or blindness of the crowned heads. Now the Pope's turn has come, and Bonaparte doesn't scruple to depose the head of the Catholic Church. Yet all keep silent. Our sovereign alone has protested against the seizure of the Duke of Oldenburg's territory, and even—" Count Rostopchin paused, feeling that he had reached the limit beyond which censure was impossible. "'Other territories have been offered in exchange for the Duchy of Oldenburg,' said Prince Bolkonsky. "'He shifts the dukes about as I might move my serfs from Bald Hills to Bogacharovo or my Ryazan estates.' The Duke of Oldenburg bears his misfortunes with admirable strength of character and resignation," remarked Boris, joining in respectfully. He said this because on his journey from Petersburg 
he had had the honor of being presented to the Duke. Prince Bolkonsky glanced at the young man as if about to say something in reply, but changed his mind, evidently considering him too young. I have read our protest about the Oldenburg affair, and was surprised how badly the note was worded," remarked Count Rostopchin, in the casual tone of a man dealing with a subject quite familiar to him. Pierre looked at Rostopchin with naive astonishment, not understanding why he should be disturbed by the bad composition of the note. "'Does it matter, Count, how the note is worded?' he asked, so long as its substance is forcible. My dear fellow, with our five hundred thousand troops, it should be easy to have a good style," returned Count Rostopchin. Pierre now understood the Count's dissatisfaction with the wording of the note. "'One would have thought quill-drivers enough had sprung up,' remarked the old prince. "'There in Petersburg they're always writing. Not notes only, but even new laws. My Andrew there has written a whole volume of laws for Russia. Nowadays they're always writing." And he laughed unnaturally. There was a momentary pause in the conversation. The old general cleared his throat to draw attention. "'Did you hear of the last event at the review in Petersburg? The figure cut by the new French ambassador?' "'Eh? Yes, I heard something. He said something awkward in His Majesty's presence.' His Majesty drew attention to the Grenadier Division and to the march past," continued the General. And it seems the Ambassador took no notice, and allowed himself to reply that, "'We in France pay no attention to such trifles.' The Emperor did not condescend to reply. At the next review, they say, the Emperor did not once deign to address him." All were silent. On this fact relating to the Emperor personally, it was impossible to pass any judgment. "'Impudent fellows!' said the Prince. "'You know Metivier. I turned him out of my house this morning. He was here. They admitted him in spite of my request that they should let no one in,' he went on glancing angrily at his daughter. And he narrated his whole conversation with the French doctor, and the reasons that convinced him that Metivier was a spy. Though these reasons were very insufficient and obscure, no one made any rejoinder. After the roast, champagne was served. The guests rose to congratulate the old prince. Princess Mary, too, went round to him. He gave her a cold, angry look and offered her his wrinkled, clean-shaven cheek to kiss. The whole expression of his face told her that he had not forgotten the morning's talk, that his decision remained in force and only the presence of visitors hindered his speaking of it to her now. When they went into the drawing-room, where coffee was served, the old men sat together. Prince Nicholas grew more animated and expressed his views on the impending war. He said that our wars with Bonaparte would be disastrous so long as we sought alliances with the Germans, and thrust ourselves into European affairs, into which we have been drawn by the peace of Tilsit. We ought not to fight either for or against Austria. Our political interests are all in the East, and in regard to Bonaparte, the only thing is to have an armed frontier and a firm policy, and he will never dare to cross the Russian frontier, as was the case in 1807." "'How can we fight the French, Prince?' said Count Rostopchin. "'Can we arm ourselves against our teachers and divinities? Look at our youths, look at our ladies. The French are our gods. 
Paris is our kingdom of heaven.' He began speaking louder, evidently to be heard by everyone. "'French dresses, French ideas, French feelings. There, now, you turn Metivier out by the scruff of his neck because he's a Frenchman and a scoundrel, but our ladies crawl after him on their knees. I went to a party last night, and there out of five ladies three were Roman Catholics and had the Pope's indulgence for doing woolwork on Sundays. And they themselves sit there nearly naked, like the signboards at our public baths, if I may say so. Ah, when one looks at our young people, Prince, one would like to take Peter the Great's old cudgel out of the museum and belabor them in the Russian way till all the nonsense jumps out of them." All were silent. The old prince looked at Rostopchin with a smile and wagged his head approvingly. "'Well, good-bye, Your Excellency. Keep well,' said Rostopchin, getting up with characteristic briskness and holding out his hand to the prince. "'Good-bye, my dear fellow. His words are music. I never tire of hearing him,' said the old prince, keeping hold of the hand and offering his cheek to be kissed. Following Rostopchin's example, the others also rose. End of Book 8, Chapter 38, Chapter 4 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 8, Chapter 4 Princess Mary, as she sat listening to the old man's talk and fault-finding, understood nothing of what she heard. She only wondered whether the guests had all observed her father's hostile attitude toward her. She did not even notice the special attentions and amiabilities shown her during dinner by Boris Trubetskoy, who was visiting them for the third time already. Princess Mary turned with absent-minded questioning look to Pierre, who, had in hand and with a smile on his face, was the last of the guests to approach her after the old prince had gone out, and they were left alone in the drawing-room. "'May I stay a little longer?' he said, letting his stout body sink into an armchair beside her. Oh, yes, she answered. You noticed nothing? her look asked. Pierre was in an agreeable after-dinner mood. He looked straight before him and smiled quietly. Have you known that young man long, princess? he asked. Who? Drubetskoy. No, not long. Do you like him? Yes, he is an agreeable young man. Why do you ask me that? said Princess Mary, still thinking of that morning's conversation with her father. "'Because I have noticed that when a young man comes on leave from Petersburg to Moscow, it is usually with the object of marrying an heiress.' "'You have observed that?' said Princess Mary. "'Yes,' returned Pierre with a smile. "'And this young man now manages matters so that where there is a wealthy heiress, there he is too. I can read him like a book.' At present he is hesitating whom to lay siege to, you or Mademoiselle Julie Karagina. He is very attentive to her. He visits them? Yes, very often. And do you know the new way of courting? said Pierre with an amused smile, evidently in that cheerful mood of good-humoured raillery for which he so often reproached himself in his diary. No, replied Princess Mary. To please Moscow girls nowadays, one has to be melancholy. He is very melancholy with Mademoiselle Karagina," said Pierre. 
"'Really?' asked Princess Mary, looking into Pierre's kindly face and still thinking of her own sorrow. "'It would be a relief,' thought she, "'if I venture to confide what I am feeling to someone. I should like to tell everything to Pierre. He is kind and generous. It would be a relief. He would give me advice.' "'Would you marry him?' "'Oh, my God, Count, there are moments when I would marry anybody!' she cried suddenly to her own surprise and with tears in her voice. "'Ah, how bitter it is to love someone near to you and to feel that—' she went on in a trembling voice, "'that you can do nothing for him but grieve him, and to know that you cannot alter this. Then there is only one thing left—to go away. But where could I go?' "'What is wrong? What is it, Princess?' But without finishing what she was saying, Princess Mary burst into tears. "'I don't know what is the matter with me today. Don't take any notice. Forget what I have said.' Pierre's gaiety vanished completely. He anxiously questioned the princess, asked her to speak out fully and confide her grief to him. But she only repeated that she begged him to forget what she had said, that she did not remember what she had said, and that she had no trouble except the one she knew of that Prince Andrew's marriage threatened to cause a rupture between father and son. "'Have you any news of the Rostovs?' she asked to change the subject. "'I was told they are coming soon. I am also expecting Andrew any day. I should like them to meet here.' "'And how does he now regard the matter?' asked Pierre, referring to the old prince. Princess Mary shook her head. "'What is to be done?' In a few months the year will be up. The thing is impossible. I only wish I could spare my brother the first moments. I wish they would come sooner. I hope to be friends with her. You have known them a long time," said Princess Mary. Tell me honestly the whole truth. What sort of girl is she, and what do you think of her? The real truth, because you know Andrew is risking so much doing this against his father's will that I should like to know. An undefined instinct told Pierre that these explanations, and repeated requests to be told the whole truth, expressed ill-will on the princess's part toward her future sister-in-law, and a wish that he should disapprove of Andrew's choice. But in reply he said what he felt rather than what he thought. "'I don't know how to answer your question,' he said, blushing without knowing why. "'I really don't know what sort of girl she is. I can't analyze her at all.' She is enchanting, but what makes her so, I don't know. That is all one can say about her." Princess Mary sighed, and the expression on her face said, "'Yes, that's what I expected and feared.' "'Is she clever?' she asked. Pierre considered. "'I think not,' he said. "'And yet, yes. She does not deign to be clever. Oh, no, she is simply enchanting, and that is all.' Princess Mary again shook her head disapprovingly. "'Ah, I so long to like her. Tell her so if you see her before I do.' "'I hear they are expected very soon,' said Pierre. Princess Mary told Pierre of her plan to become intimate with her future sister-in-law as soon as the Rostovs arrived, and to try to accustom the old prince to her. End of Book Eight, Chapter Four Book Eight, Chapter Five 
of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eight, Chapter Five. Boris had not succeeded in making a wealthy match in Petersburg, so with the same object in view, he came to Moscow. There he wavered between the two richest heiresses, Julie and Princess Mary. Though Princess Mary, despite her plainness, seemed to him more attractive than Julie, he, without knowing why, felt awkward about paying court to her. When they at last met on the old prince's name-day, she had answered at random all his attempts to talk sentimentally, evidently not listening to what he was saying. Julie, on the contrary, accepted his attentions readily, though in a manner peculiar to herself. She was twenty-seven. After the death of her brothers she had become very wealthy. She was by now decidedly plain, but thought herself not merely as good-looking as before, but even far more attractive. She was confirmed in this delusion by the fact that she had become a very wealthy heiress, and also by the fact that the older she grew the less dangerous she became to men and the more freely they could associate with her and avail themselves of her suppers, soirees, and the animated company that assembled at her house, without incurring any obligation. A man who would have been afraid ten years before of going every day to the house when there was a girl of seventeen there, for fear of compromising her and committing himself, would now go boldly every day, and treat her not as a marriageable girl, but as a sexless acquaintance. That winter the Karagans' house was the most agreeable and hospitable in Moscow. In addition to the formal evening and dinner parties, a large company, chiefly of men, gathered there every day, supping at midnight and staying till three in the morning. Julie never missed a ball, a promenade, or a play. Her dresses were always of the latest fashion. But in spite of that she seemed to be disillusioned about everything and told everyone that she did not believe either in friendship or in love, or any of the joys of life, and expected peace only yonder. She adopted the tone of one who has suffered a great disappointment, like a girl who has either lost the man she loved or been cruelly deceived by him. Though nothing of the kind had happened to her she was regarded in that light, and had even herself come to believe that she had suffered much in life. This melancholy which did not prevent her amusing herself, did not hinder the young people who came to her house from passing the time pleasantly. Every visitor who came to the house paid his tribute to the melancholy mood of the hostess, and then amused himself with society gossip, dancing, intellectual games, and bourrime, which were in vogue at the Karagans. Only a few of these young men, among them Boris, entered more deeply into Julie's melancholy and with these she had prolonged conversations in private on the vanity of all worldly things, and to them she showed her albums filled with mournful sketches, maxims, and verses. To Boris Julie was particularly gracious. She regretted his early disillusionment with life, offered him such consolation of friendship as she who had herself suffered so much could render, and showed him her album. Boris sketched two trees in the album, and wrote, Rustic trees, your dark branches shed gloom and melancholy upon me. On another page he drew a tomb and wrote, L'amour est secrable et l'amour est tranquille. Ah, contre les douleurs il n'a pas d'autre asile. 
death gives relief and death is peaceful. Ah, from suffering there is no other refuge." Julie said this was charming. "'There is something so enchanting in the smile of melancholy,' she said to Boris, repeating word for word a passage she had copied from a book. "'It is a ray of light in the darkness, a shade between sadness and despair, showing the possibility of consolation.' In reply, Boris wrote these lines. Aliment de boison d'un homme trop sensible. Toi, sens que le bonheur me sera impossible. Tant de mélancolie, ah, viens me consoler. Viens calmer la tourmente de ma sombre retraite. Et mêle une douceur secrète à ces pleurs qui sont coulées. Poisonous nourishment of a too sensitive soul, thou without whom happiness would be for me impossible. Tender melancholy, ah, come to console me, come to calm the torments of my gloomy retreat, and mingle a secret sweetness with these tears that I feel to be flowing." For Boris, Julie played most doleful nocturnes on her harp. Boris read poor Liza aloud to her, and more than once interrupted the reading because of the emotions that choked him. Meeting at large gatherings, Julie and Boris looked on one another as the only souls who understood one another in a world of indifferent people. Anna Mikhailovna, who often visited the Karagans, while playing cards with the mother, made careful inquiries as to Julie's dowry. She was to have two estates in Penza and the Nizhegorod forests. Anna Mikhailovna regarded the refined sadness that united her son to the wealthy Julie with emotion and resignation to the divine will. "'You are always charming and melancholy, my dear Julie,' she said to the daughter. "'Boris says his soul finds repose at your house. He has suffered so many disappointments and is so sensitive,' said she to the mother. "'Ah, my dear, I can't tell you how fond I have grown of Julie latterly,' she said to her son. "'But who could help loving her? She is an angelic being.' Oh, Boris, Boris!" she paused. And how I pity her mother, she went on. Today she showed me her accounts and letters from Penza. They have enormous states there, and she, poor thing, has no one to help her, and they do cheat her so. Boris smiled almost imperceptibly while listening to his mother. He laughed blandly at her naive diplomacy, but listened to what she had to say and sometimes questioned her carefully about the Panza and Nizhogorod estates. Julie had long been expecting a proposal from her melancholy adorer and was ready to accept it, but some secret feeling of repulsion for her, for her passionate desire to get married, for her artificiality, and a feeling of horror at renouncing the possibility of real love still restrained Boris. His leave was expiring. He spent every day and whole days at the Karagans, and every day, on thinking the matter over, told himself that he would propose tomorrow. But in Julie's presence, looking at her red face and chin, nearly always powdered, her moist eyes, and her expression of continual readiness to pass at once from melancholy into an unnatural rapture of married bliss, Boris could not utter the decisive words. Though in imagination, he had long regarded himself as the possessor of those Penza and Nishigarod estates, and had apportioned the use of the income from them. Julie saw Boris' indecision, 
and sometimes the thought occurred to her that she was repulsive to him, but her feminine self-deception immediately supplied her with consolation, and she told herself that he was only shy from love. Her melancholy, however, began to turn to irritability, and not long before Boris' departure she formed a definite plan of action. Just as Boris' leave of absence was expiring, Anatole Karagin made his appearance in Moscow, and of course in the Karagin's drawing-room, and Julie, suddenly abandoning her melancholy, became cheerful and very attentive to Karagin. "'My dear,' said Anna Mikhailovna to her son, "'I know from a reliable source that Prince Vasily has sent his son to Moscow to get him married to Julie. I am so fond of Julie that I should be sorry for her. What do you think of it, my dear?' The idea of being made a fool of, and having thrown away that whole month of arduous melancholy service to Julie, and of seeing all the revenue from the Penza estates, which he had already mentally apportioned and put to proper use, fall into the hands of another, and especially into the hands of that idiot Anatole, pained Boris. He drove to the Karagans with the firm intention of proposing. Julie met him in a gay, careless manner, spoke casually of how she had enjoyed yesterday's ball, and asked him when he was leaving. Though Boris had come intentionally to speak of his love and therefore meant to be tender, he began speaking irritably of feminine inconstancy, of how easily women can turn from sadness to joy, and how their moods depend solely on who happens to be paying court to them. Julie was offended, and replied that it was true that a woman needs variety, and the same thing over and over again would weary anyone. Then I should advise you— Boris began, wishing to sting her. But at that instant the galling thought occurred to him that he might have to leave Moscow without having accomplished his aim, and have vainly wasted his efforts, which was a thing he never allowed to happen. He checked himself in the middle of the sentence, lowered his eyes to avoid seeing her unpleasantly irritated and irresolute face, and said, "'I did not come here at all to quarrel with you. On the contrary, he glanced at her to make sure that he might go on. Her irritability had suddenly quite vanished, and her anxious, imploring eyes were fixed on him with greedy expectation. "'I can always arrange so as not to see her often,' thought Boris. "'The affair has begun and must be finished.' He blushed hotly, raised his eyes to hers, and said, "'You know my feelings for you.' "'There was no need to say more.' Julie's face shone with triumph and self-satisfaction, but she forced Boris to say all that is said on such occasions, that he loved her and had never loved any other woman more than her. She knew that for the Penza estates and the Nezhogorod forests she could demand this, and she received what she demanded. The affianced couple, no longer alluding to trees that shed gloom and melancholy upon them, planned the arrangements of a splendid house in Petersburg, paid calls, and prepared everything for a brilliant wedding. End of Book 8, Chapter 5Chapter 6. At the end of January, 
old Count Rostov went to Moscow with Natasha and Sonia. The Countess was still unwell and unable to travel, but it was impossible to wait for her recovery. Prince Andrew was expected in Moscow any day, the trousseau had to be ordered, and the estate near Moscow had to be sold, besides which the opportunity of presenting his future daughter-in-law to old Prince Bolkonsky while he was in Moscow could not be missed. The Rostovs' Moscow house had not been heated that winter, and as they had come only for a short time and the Countess was not with them, the Count decided to stay with Maria Dmitrievna Akrasimova, who had long been pressing her hospitality on them. Late one evening the Rostovs' four sleighs drove into Maria Dmitrievna's courtyard in the old Konyushiny street. Maria Dmitrievna lived alone. She had already married off her daughter, and her sons were all in the service. She held herself as erect, told everyone her opinion as candidly, loudly, and bluntly as ever, and her whole bearing seemed a reproach to others for any weakness, passion, or temptation, the possibility of which she did not admit. From early in the morning, wearing a dressing-jacket, she attended to her household affairs, and then she drove out, on holy days to church, and after the service to jails and prisons on affairs of which she never spoke to anyone. On ordinary days, after dressing, she received petitioners of various classes, of whom there were always some. Then she had dinner, a substantial and appetizing meal at which there were always three or four guests. After dinner she played a game of Boston, and at night she had the newspapers or a new book read to her while she knitted. She rarely made an exception and went out to pay visits, and then only to the most important persons in the town. She had not yet gone to bed when the Rostovs arrived, and the pulley of the hall door squeaked from the cold as it led in the Rostovs and their servants. Maria Dmitrievna, with her spectacles hanging down on her nose and her head flung back, stood in the hall doorway looking with a stern, grim face at the new arrivals. One might have thought she was angry with the travellers and would immediately turn them out, had she not at the same time been giving careful instructions to the servants for the accommodation of the visitors and their belongings. "'The Count's things? Bring them here,' she said, pointing to the portmanteaus and not greeting anyone. "'The young ladies? There, to the left. Now what are you dawdling for?' she cried to the maids. "'Get the samovar ready.' "'You've grown plumper and prettier,' she remarked, drawing Natasha, whose cheeks were glowing from the cold, to her by the hood. "'Foo! You are cold! Now take off your things, quick!' she shouted to the Count, who was going to kiss her hand. "'You're half-frozen, I'm sure. Bring some rum for tea.' "'Bonjour, Sonia, dear,' she added, turning to Sonia and indicating by this French greeting her slightly contemptuous though affectionate attitude toward her. When they came in to tea, having taken off their outdoor things and tidied themselves up after their journey, Maria Dmitrievna kissed them all in due order. "'I'm heartily glad you have come and are staying with me. It was high time,' she said, giving Natasha a significant look. "'The old man is here, and his son's expected any day. You'll have to make his acquaintance.' "'But we'll speak of that later on,' she added, glancing at Sonia with a look that showed she did not want to speak of it in her presence. "'Now listen.' she said to the Count. "'What do you want tomorrow? Whom will you send for? Shinshin?' she crooked one of her fingers. "'The sniveling Anna Mikhailovna? That's two. 
She's here with her son. The son is getting married. Then Bazukov, eh? He is here, too, with his wife. He ran away from her, and she came galloping after him. He dined with me on Wednesday. As for them—and she pointed to the girls—tomorrow I'll take them first to the Iberian shrine of the Mother of God, and then we'll drive to the super-rogues. I suppose you'll have everything new. Don't judge by me. Sleeves nowadays are this size. The other day young Princess Irina Vasilevna came to see me. She was an awful sight. Looked as if she had put two barrels on her arms. You know, not a day passes now without some new fashion. And what have you to do yourself? she asked the Count sternly. One thing has come on top of another. Her rags to buy, and now a purchaser has turned up for the Moscow estate, and for the house. If you will be so kind, I'll fix a time and go down to the estate just for a day. I'll leave my lassies with you. All right, all right. They'll be safe with me, as safe as in Chancery. I'll take them where they must go, scold them a bit, and pet them a bit," said Marya Dmitrievna, touching her goddaughter and favorite Natasha on the cheek with her large hand. Next morning Marya Dmitrievna took the young ladies to the Iberian shrine of the Mother of God, and to Madame Super Rouguet, who was so afraid of Marya Dmitrievna that she always let her have costumes at a loss, merely to get rid of her. Marya Dmitrievna ordered almost the whole trousseau. When they got home she turned everybody out of the room except Natasha, and then called her pet to her armchair. "'Well, now we'll talk. I congratulate you on your betrothed. You've hooked a fine fellow. I am glad for your sake, and I've known him since he was so high.' She held her hand a couple of feet from the ground. Natasha blushed happily. I like him, and all his family. Now listen. You know that old Prince Nicholas much dislikes his son's marrying. The old fellow's crotchety. Of course Prince Andrew is not a child and can shift without him, but it's not nice to enter a family against a father's will. One wants to do it peacefully and lovingly. You're a clever girl, and you'll know how to manage. Be kind and use your wits. Then all will be well." Natasha remained silent, from shyness Marya Dmitrievna supposed, but really because she disliked anyone interfering in what touched her love of Prince Andrew, which seemed to her so apart from all human affairs that no one could understand it. She loved and knew Prince Andrew, he loved her only, and was to come one of these days and take her. She wanted nothing more. You see, I have known him a long time, and am also fond of Mary, your future sister-in-law. Husband's sisters bring up blisters, but this one wouldn't hurt a fly. She has asked me to bring you two together. Tomorrow you'll go with your father to see her. Be very nice and affectionate to her. You're younger than she. When he comes, he'll find you already know his sister and father and are liked by them. Am I right or not? Won't that be best?" "'Yes, it will,' Natasha answered reluctantly. End of Book Eight, Chapter Six Book Eight, Chapter Seven of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.
Book Eight, Chapter Seven. Next day, by Maria Dmitrievna's advice, Count Rostov took Natasha to call on Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky. The Count did not set out cheerfully on this visit. At heart, he felt afraid. He well remembered the last interview he had had with the old prince at the time of the enrollment, when, in reply to an invitation to dinner, he had to listen to an angry reprimand for not having provided his full quota of men. Natasha, on the other hand, having put on her best gown, was in the highest spirits. "'They can't help liking me,' she thought. "'Everybody always has liked me, and I am so willing to do anything they wish, so ready to be fond of him, for being his father, and of her, for being his sister, that there is no reason for them not to like me.' They drove up to the gloomy old house on the Vazvezenka and entered the vestibule. "'Well, the Lord have mercy on us,' said the Count, half in jest, half in earnest. But Natasha noticed that her father was flurried on entering the anteroom, and inquired timidly and softly whether the prince and princess were at home. When they had been announced, a perturbation was noticeable among the servants. The footman who had gone to announce them was stopped by another in the large hall, and they whispered to one another. Then a maidservant ran into the hall and hurriedly said something, mentioning the princess. At last an old, cross-looking footman came and announced to the Rostovs that the prince was not receiving, but that the princess begged them to walk up. The first person who came to meet the visitors was Mademoiselle Bourienne. She greeted the father and daughter with special politeness, and showed them to the princess' room. The princess, looking excited and nervous, her face flushed in patches, ran in to meet the visitors, treading heavily and vainly trying to appear cordial and at ease. From the first glance Princess Mary did not like Natasha. She thought her too fashionably dressed, frivolously gay and vain. She did not at all realize that, before having seen her future sister-in-law, she was prejudiced against her by involuntary envy of her beauty, youth and happiness, as well as by jealousy of her brother's love for her. Apart from this insuperable antipathy to her, Princess Mary was agitated just then because on the Rostovs being announced, the old prince had shouted that he did not wish to see them, that Princess Mary might do so if she chose, but they were not to be admitted to him. She had decided to receive them, but feared lest the prince might at any moment indulge in some freak, as he seemed much upset by the Rostovs' visit. "'There, my dear princess, I brought you my songstress,' said the Count, bowing and looking round uneasily, as if afraid the old prince might appear. "'I am so glad you should get to know one another. Very sorry the prince is still ailing.' And after a few more commonplace remarks he rose. "'If you'll allow me to leave my Natasha in your hands for a quarter of an hour, princess, I'll drive round to see Anna Semenovna. It's quite near in the dog square, and then I'll come back for her.' The Count had devised this diplomatic ruse, as he afterwards told his daughter, to give the future sisters-in-law an opportunity to talk to one another freely, but another motive was to avoid the danger of encountering the old prince, of whom he was afraid. He did not mention this to his daughter, but Natasha noticed her father's nervousness and anxiety, and felt mortified by it. She blushed for him grew still angrier at having blushed, and looked at the princess with a bold and defiant expression which said that she was not afraid of anybody. The princess told the Count that she would be delighted, 
and only begged him to stay longer at Anna Semenovna's, and he departed. Despite the uneasy glances thrown at her by Princess Mary, who wished to have a tete-a-tete with Natasha, Mademoiselle Bourienne remained in the room, and persistently talked about Moscow amusements and theatres. Natasha felt offended by the hesitation she had noticed in the anteroom, by her father's nervousness, and by the unnatural manner of the princess, who, she thought, was making a favour of receiving her, and so everything displeased her. She did not like Princess Mary, whom she thought very plain, affected, and dry. Natasha suddenly shrank into herself, and involuntarily assumed an off-hand air which alienated Princess Mary still more. After five minutes of irksome, constrained conversation, they heard the sound of slippered feet rapidly approaching. Princess Mary looked frightened. The door opened, and the old prince, in a dressing-gown and a white nightcap, came in. "'Ah! Madam!' he began. "'Madam! Countess! Countess Rostova, if I am not mistaken! I beg you to excuse me! To excuse me!' "'I did not know, madam. God is my witness! I did not know you had honoured us with a visit, and I came in such a costume only to see my daughter. I beg you to excuse me. God is my witness. I didn't know.' He repeated, stressing the word God so unnaturally and so unpleasantly, that Princess Mary stood with downcast eyes, not daring to look either at her father or at Natasha. Nor did the latter, having risen and curtsied, know what to do. Mademoiselle Bourienne alone smiled agreeably. "'I beg you to excuse me, excuse me. God is my witness. I did not know,' muttered the old man, and after looking Natasha over from head to foot he went out. Mademoiselle Bourienne was the first to recover herself after this apparition, and began speaking about the prince's indisposition. Natasha and Princess Mary looked at one another in silence, and the longer they did so without saying what they wanted to say, the greater grew their antipathy to one another. When the Count returned, Natasha was impolitely pleased and hastened to get away. At that moment she hated the stiff, elderly princess, who could place her in such an embarrassing position, and had spent half an hour with her without once mentioning Prince Andrew. "'I couldn't begin talking about him in the presence of that Frenchwoman,' thought Natasha. The same thought was meanwhile tormenting Princess Mary. She knew what she ought to have said to Natasha, but she had been unable to say it because Mademoiselle Bourienne was in the way, and because, without knowing why, she felt it very difficult to speak of the marriage. When the Count was already leaving the room, Princess Mary went up hurriedly to Natasha, took her by the hand, and said with a deep sigh, "'Wait! I must!' Natasha glanced at her ironically, without knowing why. "'Dear Natalie,' said Princess Mary, "'I want you to know that I am glad my brother has found happiness.' She paused, feeling that she was not telling the truth. Natasha noticed this and guessed its reason. "'I think, Princess, it is not convenient to speak of that now,' she said with external dignity and coldness, though she felt the tears choking her. "'What have I said, and what have I done?' thought she, as soon as she was out of the room. They waited a long time for Natasha to come to dinner that day. She sat in her room crying like a child, blowing her nose and sobbing. Sonia stood beside her, kissing her hair. "'Natasha, what is it about?' she asked. "'What do they matter to you? It will all pass, Natasha.' 
but if you only knew how offensive it was! As if I—' "'Don't talk about it, Natasha. It wasn't your fault, so why should you mind?' "'Kiss me,' said Sonia. Natasha raised her head and, kissing her friend on the lips, pressed her wet face against her. "'I can't tell you. I don't know. No one's to blame,' said Natasha. "'It's my fault. But it all hurts terribly. Oh, why doesn't he come?' She came into dinner with red eyes. Marya Dmitrievna, who knew how the prince had received the Rostovs, pretended not to notice how upset Natasha was, and jested resolutely and loudly at the table with the Count and the other guests. End of Book Eight, Chapter Seven Book Eight, Chapter Eight of War and Peace, Volume Two, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eight, Chapter Eight. That evening, the Rostovs went to the opera, for which Maria Dmitrievna had taken a box. Natasha did not want to go, but could not refuse Maria Dmitrievna's kind offer, which was intended expressly for her. When she came ready dressed into the ballroom to await her father, and looking in the large mirror there saw that she was pretty, very pretty, she felt even more sad, but it was a sweet, tender sadness. Oh, God, if he were here now, I would not behave as I did then, but differently. I would not be silly and afraid of things. I would simply embrace him, cling to him, and make him look at me with those searching, inquiring eyes with which he has so often looked at me, and then I would make him laugh as he used to laugh. And his eyes! How I see those eyes!" thought Natasha. And what do his father and sister matter to me? I love him alone, him, him, with that face and those eyes, with his smile, manly and yet childlike. No, I had better not think of him, not think of him, but forget him, quite forget him for the present. I can't bear this waiting, and I shall cry in a minute, and she turned away from the glass, making an effort not to cry. And how can Sonia love Nicholas so calmly and quietly, and wait so long and so patiently?" thought she, looking at Sonia, who also came in quite ready, with a fan in her hand. No, she's altogether different. I can't. Natasha at that moment felt so softened and tender that it was not enough for her to love and know she was beloved. She wanted now, at once, to embrace the man she loved, to speak and hear from him words of love such as filled her heart. While she sat in the carriage beside her father, pensively watching the lights of the street lamps flickering on the frozen window, she felt still sadder and more in love, and forgot where she was going and with whom. Having fallen into the line of carriages, the Rostovs' carriage drove up to the theatre, its wheels squeaking over the snow. Natasha and Sonia, holding up their dresses, jumped out quickly. The Count got out helped by the footman, and passing among men and women who were entering and the program sellers, they all three went along the corridor to the first row of boxes. Through the closed doors the music was already audible. "'Natasha! Your hair!' whispered Sonia. An attendant deferentially and quickly slipped before the ladies and opened the door of their box. 
the music sounded louder, and through the door rows of brightly lit boxes in which ladies sat with bare arms and shoulders, and noisy stalls brilliant with uniforms glittered before their eyes. A lady entering the next box shot a glance of feminine envy at Natasha. The curtain had not yet risen, and the overture was being played. Natasha, smoothing her gown, went in with Sonia and sat down, scanning the brilliant tiers of boxes opposite. A sensation she had not experienced for a long time, that of hundreds of eyes looking at her bare arms and neck, suddenly affected her both agreeably and disagreeably, and called up a whole crowd of memories, desires, and emotions associated with that feeling. The two remarkably pretty girls, Natasha and Sonia, with Count Rostov, who had not been seen in Moscow for a long time, attracted general attention. Moreover, everybody knew vaguely of Natasha's engagement to Prince Andrew, and knew that the Rostovs had lived in the country ever since, and all looked with curiosity at a fiancé who was making one of the best matches in Russia. Natasha's looks, as everyone told her, had improved in the country, and that evening, thanks to her agitation, she was particularly pretty. She struck those who saw her by her fullness of life and beauty, combined with her indifference to everything about her. Her black eyes looked at the crowd without seeing anyone, and her delicate arm, bare to above the elbow, lay on the velvet edge of the box, while evidently, unconsciously, she opened and closed her hand in time to the music, crumpling her program. Look. There's Alanina," said Sonia. With her mother, isn't it? Dear me! Michael Kirillovich has grown still stouter," remarked the Count. Look at our Anna Mikhailovna! What a headdress she has on! The Karagins, Julie, and Boris with them. One can see at once that they're engaged. Drubetskoy has proposed. Oh, yes, I heard it today said Shinshin, coming into the Rostov's box. Natasha looked in the direction in which her father's eyes were turned, and saw Julie sitting beside her mother with a happy look on her face, and a string of pearls round her thick red neck, which Natasha knew was covered with powder. Behind them, wearing a smile and leaning over with an ear to Julie's mouth, was Boris' handsome, smoothly brushed head. He looked at the Rostovs from under his brows and said something smiling to his betrothed. "'They are talking about us, about me and him,' thought Natasha. "'And he no doubt is calming her jealousy of me. They needn't trouble themselves, if only they knew how little I am concerned about any of them.' Behind them sat Anna Mikhailovna wearing a green headdress, and with a happy look of resignation to the will of God on her face. Their box was pervaded by that atmosphere of an affianced couple which Natasha knew so well and liked so much. She turned away and suddenly remembered all that had been so humiliating in her morning's visit. What right has he not to wish to receive me into his family? Oh, better not to think of it, not till he comes back, she told herself, and began looking at the faces, some strange and some familiar in the stalls. In the front, in the very center, leaning back against the orchestra rail, stood Dolokhov in a Persian dress, his curly hair brushed up into a huge shock. He stood in full view of the audience, well aware that he was attracting everyone's attention, yet as much at ease as though he were in his own room. 
Around him thronged Moscow's most brilliant young men, whom he evidently dominated. The Count, laughing, nudged the blushing Sonia and pointed to her former adorer. "'Do you recognize him?' said he. "'And where has he sprung from?' he asked, turning to Shinshin. "'Didn't he vanish somewhere?' "'He did,' replied Shinshin. "'He was in the Caucasus and ran away from there. "'They say he has been acting as minister to some ruling prince in Persia, "'where he killed the Shah's brother. "'Now all the Moscow ladies are mad about him. "'It's Dolokhov the Persian that does it. "'We never hear a word but Dolokhov is mentioned. "'They swear by him.' They offer him to you as they would a dish of choice sterlet. Dolokhov and Anatole Karagin have turned all our ladies' heads." A tall, beautiful woman with a mass of plaited hair and much exposed plump white shoulders and neck, round which she wore a double string of large pearls, entered the adjoining box rustling her heavy silk dress, and took a long time settling into her place. Natasha involuntarily gazed at that neck those shoulders and pearls and coiffure, and admired the beauty of the shoulders and the pearls. While Natasha was fixing her gaze on her for the second time, the lady looked round and, meeting the Count's eyes, nodded to him and smiled. She was the Countess Bezukhova, Pierre's wife, and the Count, who knew everybody in society, leaned over and spoke to her. "'Have you been here long, Countess?' he inquired. "'I'll call. I'll call to kiss your hand.' I'm here on business, and have brought my girls with me. They say Semenova acts marvelously. Count Pierre never used to forget us. Is he here?" "'Yes, he meant to look in,' answered Elaine, and glanced attentively at Natasha. Count Rostov resumed his seat. "'Handsome, isn't she?' he whispered to Natasha. "'Wonderful,' answered Natasha. "'She's a woman one could easily fall in love with.' Just then the last chords of the overture were heard, and the conductor tapped with his stick. Some latecomers took their seats in the stalls, and the curtain rose. As soon as it rose, everyone in the boxes and stalls became silent, and all the men, old and young, in uniform and evening dress, and all the women with gems on their bare flesh, turned their whole attention with eager curiosity to the stage. Natasha, too, began to look at it. End of Book 8, Chapter 8「Book 8, Chapter 9 of War and Peace, Volume 2, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 8, Chapter 9 The floor of the stage consisted of smooth boards. At the sides was some painted cardboard representing trees, and at the back was a cloth stretched over boards. In the center of the stage sat some girls in red bodices and white skirts. One very fat girl in a white dress sat apart on a low bench, to the back of which a piece of green cardboard was glued. They all sang something. When they had finished their song, the girl in white went up to the prompter's box, and a man with tight silk trousers over his stout legs, and holding a plume and a dagger, went up to her and began singing, waving his arms about. First the man in tight trousers sang alone, then she sang, then they both paused while the orchestra played, 
and the man fingered the hand of the girl in white, obviously awaiting the bee to start singing with her. They sang together, and everyone in the theatre began clapping and shouting, while the man and woman on the stage, who represented lovers, began smiling, spreading out their arms and bowing. After her life in the country, and in her present serious mood, all this seemed grotesque and amazing to Natasha. She could not follow the opera, nor even listen to the music. She saw only the painted cardboard and the queerly dressed men and women who moved, spoke, and sang so strangely in that brilliant light. She knew what it was all meant to represent, but it was so pretentiously false and unnatural that she first felt ashamed for the actors and then amused at them. She looked at the faces of the audience, seeking in them the same sense of ridicule and perplexity she herself experienced, but they all seemed attentive to what was happening on the stage, and expressed delight which to Natasha seemed feigned. "'I suppose it has to be like this,' she thought. She kept looking round, in turn at the rows of pomaded heads in the stalls, and then at the semi-nude women in the boxes, especially at Elaine in the next box, who, apparently quite unclothed, sat with a quiet tranquil smile, not taking her eyes off the stage. And feeling the bright light that flooded the whole place and the warm air heated by the crowd, Natasha little by little began to pass into a state of intoxication she had not experienced for a long while. She did not realize who and where she was, nor what was going on before her. As she looked and thought, the strangest fancies unexpectedly and disconnectedly passed through her mind. The idea occurred to her of jumping onto the edge of the box and singing the aria the actress was singing. Then she wished to touch with her fan an old gentleman sitting not far from her, then to lean over to Elaine and tickle her. At a moment when all was quiet before the commencement of a song, a door leading to the stalls on the side nearest the Rostovs' box creaked, and the steps of a belated arrival were heard. "'There's Kragan,' whispered Shinshin. Countess Bezikova turned smiling to the newcomer, and Natasha, following the direction of that look, saw an exceptionally handsome adjutant approaching their box with a self-assured yet courteous bearing. This was Anatole Karagin, whom she had seen and noticed long ago at the ball in Petersburg. He was now in an adjutant's uniform with one epaulet and a shoulder-knot. He moved with a restrained swagger, which would have been ridiculous, had he not been so good-looking, and had his handsome face not worn such an expression of good-humoured complacency and gaiety. Though the performance was proceeding, he walked deliberately down the carpeted gangway, his sword and spurs slightly jingling and his handsome perfumed head held high. Having looked at Natasha, he approached his sister, laid his well-gloved hand on the edge of her box, nodded to her, and leaning forward asked a question with a motion toward Natasha. Mais charmante, said he, evidently referring to Natasha, who did not exactly hear his words, but understood them from the movement of his lips. He then took his place in the first row of the stalls, and sat down beside Dolokhov, nudging with his elbow, in a friendly and off-hand way, that Dolokhov whom others treated so fawningly. He winked at him gaily, smiled, and rested his foot against the orchestra screen. How like the brother is to the sister, remarked the Count, and how handsome they both are. Shinshin, lowering his voice, began to tell the Count of some intrigue of Karagin's in Moscow, 
and Natasha tried to overhear it just because he had said she was charmant. The first act was over. In the stalls everyone began moving about, going out and coming in. Boris came to the Rostovs' box, received their congratulations very simply, and raising his eyebrows with an absent-minded smile conveyed to Natasha and Sonia his fiancée's invitation to her wedding and went away. Natasha, with a gay, coquettish smile, talked to him, and congratulated on his approaching wedding that same Boris with whom she had formerly been in love. In the state of intoxication she was in, everything seemed simple and natural. The scantily clad Elaine smiled at everyone in the same way, and Natasha gave Boris a similar smile. Elaine's box was filled and surrounded from the stalls by the most distinguished and intellectual men, who seemed to vie with one another in their wish to let everyone see that they knew her. During the whole of that entr'acte, Karagin stood with Dolokhov in front of the orchestra partition, looking at the Rostovs' box. Natasha knew he was talking about her, and this afforded her pleasure. She even turned so that he should see her profile in what she thought was its most becoming aspect. Before the beginning of the second act, Pierre appeared in the stalls. The Rostovs had not seen him since their arrival. His face looked sad, and he had grown still stouter since Natasha last saw him. He passed up to the front rows, not noticing anyone. Anatole went up to him and began speaking to him, looking at and indicating the Rostovs' box. On seeing Natasha, Pierre grew animated, and hastily passing between the rows came toward their box. When he got there he leaned on his elbows, and smiling, talked to her for a long time. While conversing with Pierre, Natasha heard a man's voice in Countess Bezukhova's box, and something told her it was Karagin. She turned and their eyes met. Almost smiling, he gazed straight into her eyes, with such an enraptured caressing look, that it seemed strange to be so near him, to look at him like that, to be so sure he admired her and not to be acquainted with him. In the second act there was scenery representing tombstones, there was a round hole in the canvas to represent the moon, shades were raised over the footlights, and from horns and contrabass came deep notes while many people appeared from right and left wearing black cloaks and holding things like daggers in their hands. They began waving their arms. Then some other people ran in and began dragging away the maiden who had been in white and was now in light blue. They did not drag her away at once, but sang with her for a long time and then at last dragged her off, and behind the scenes something metallic was struck three times, and everyone knelt down and sang a prayer. All these things were repeatedly interrupted by the enthusiastic shouts of the audience. During this act, every time Natasha looked toward the stalls, she saw Anatole Karagin with an arm thrown across the back of his chair staring at her. She was pleased to see that he was captivated by her, and it did not occur to her that there was anything wrong in it. When the second act was over, Countess Bezukhova rose, turned to the Rostovs' box, her whole bosom completely exposed, beckoned the old count with a gloved finger, and paying no attention to those who had entered her box, began talking to him with an amiable smile. "'Do make me acquainted with your charming daughters,' said she. "'The whole town is singing their praises, and I don't even know them.' Natasha rose and curtsied to the splendid countess. She was so pleased by praise from this brilliant beauty that she blushed with pleasure. 
I want to become a Muscovite too now," said Elaine. How is it you're not ashamed to bury such pearls in the country? Countess Bezukhova quite deserved her reputation of being a fascinating woman. She could say what she did not think, especially what was flattering, quite simply and naturally. Dear Count, you must let me look after your daughters. Though I am not staying here long this time, nor are you, I will try to amuse them. I have already heard much of you in Petersburg and wanted to get to know you," said she to Natasha with her stereotyped and lovely smile. I had heard about you from my page, Drubetskoy. Have you heard he is getting married? And also from my husband's friend Bolkonsky, Prince Andrew Bolkonsky," she went on with special emphasis, implying that she knew of his relation to Natasha. To get better acquainted, she asked that one of the young ladies should come into her box for the rest of the performance, and Natasha moved over to it. The scene of the third act represented a palace in which many candles were burning and pictures of knights with short beards hung on the walls. In the middle stood what were probably a king and a queen. The king waved his right arm and, evidently nervous, sang something badly and sat down on a crimson throne. The maiden, who had been first in white and then in light blue, now wore only a smock, and stood beside the throne with her hair down. She sang something mournfully, addressing the queen, but the king waved his arm severely, and men and women with bare legs came in from both sides and began dancing altogether. Then the violins played very shrilly and merrily, and one of the women with thick bare legs and thin arms, separating from the others, went behind the wings, adjusted her bodice, returned to the middle of the stage, and began jumping and striking one foot rapidly against the other. In the stalls everyone clapped and shouted, "'Bravo!' Then one of the men went into a corner of the stage. The cymbals and horns in the orchestra struck up more loudly, and this man with bare legs jumped very high and waved his feet about very rapidly. He was Dupour, who received sixty thousand roubles a year for this art. Everybody in the stalls, boxes and galleries began clapping and shouting with all their might, and the man stopped and began smiling and bowing to all sides. Then other men and women danced with bare legs. Then the king again shouted to the sound of music, and they all began singing. But suddenly a storm came on. Chromatic scales and diminished sevenths were heard in the orchestra, everyone ran off, again dragging one of their number away, and the curtain dropped. Once more there was a terrible noise and clatter among the audience, and with rapturous faces everyone began shouting, Dupour! 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 Natasha no longer thought this strange. She looked about with pleasure, smiling joyfully. "'Isn't Dupour delightful?' Elaine asked her. "'Oh, yes,' replied Natasha. End of Book 8, Chapter 9「Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.'